In case you missed it, with Susan Cahill, a look back at the week on News Talk. Like you'd see the houses and stuff that you'd know there's people like and you'd know that they'd be going in for that. Yeah, it's getting bad. Everyone's using absolutely crack houses and the knock-on effect. Such a addictive drug. You know the death that's built up, the prostitution. It's in the community. It's an epidemic. They're not even using houses. They're using the likes of in here behind these little bin sheds, these little mattresses, bringing them in here. Like so, they're just looking for anywhere boarded-up houses. I don't know if it's getting worse. I just don't think it's getting any better. Josh Crosby reporting. Hello and a very good morning to you. Now, while government ministers are going full throttle on the COVID pandemic, other major issues are looming large. Housing, homelessness, drugs. Sure, the list goes on and on. Do you really see that type of thing? Because I'm unconscious there'll be lots of people listening to this and they won't live in Dublin. There'll be others maybe who haven't been up here in a long time because of the pandemic or for other reasons. And maybe they haven't experienced this. I mean, is that is that genuinely a daily thing? If you walk around town, you'll see people mainlining heroin into their grind. Yeah, it is. That's a daily thing. That's a daily thing in Dublin. And it's also a daily thing where I walk from, I live in Temple Bar. So if I walk around the town, I need money in my pocket to give to people because I'm approached, I'd say, 20 times a day for money. And it's genuine people who are on the street and they're they're homeless. And it's a it's an absolute an utter crisis. We've dealt with COVID as a massive uh, worldwide crisis. Now we need to deal with this and the government need to deal with the, you know, the profit has become the sole basis of our economic situation here in Ireland. And there's this cutthroat competition and a selfish ambition by our government and by a lot of our people where people are more concerned about making money than they are making lives. So the community is breaking down because of uh, lack of social housing. There's uh, a whole generation of young people who feel like isolated, you know, so that the gangs of young fellas with anger, you know, that the system doesn't allow them to exist in, you know, they're hoping for change. They're turning to crime, you know, uh, they're they're being coaxed in by these ganglands, told that it's glamorous to make money quickly. And if they don't see hope and if they don't have a community, a social community, um, well, why wouldn't they, do you know? Yeah, you can understand yeah. you don't take this kind of two dimensional view of them that they're just kind of these are just young pups. Brats. No, they're not. They're 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 being let down by us all, you know. The housing crisis is at its all time it's just it's it's evil at this stage nearly, you know, that you, you're you're not going to allow our next generation to be raised by the village as such. You're not going to allow them have a community. You're going to isolate them and make them feel like that they have no hope except to go into drugs or go into gangs. Or, and, you know, so that's our fault. We need to infiltrate young people as they go into national school. You know, they need to be told, what's the point in teaching maths and Irish and English? We need to be taught how to survive in a new modern world. It was fine. We were educated originally for to go into education again, to become a policeman, to become a a nurse or a doctor. Mm. Now we need to be educated how to survive in a far more modern society that has so much more complications than just going from, you know, from education to college to... Do do you worry that, you know, that that sense of community, which maybe is uh, or that lack of sense of community, which may be alienating some of those younger people, that that's going to be 
worse in years to come in in the city centre? Because we had all this talk this week about apartments and the funding of apartments and who can invest in apartments and buy apartments. And and the sense from it all was that the city centre, for whatever reason, and listen, the powers that be might disagree with this, but there are critics of the powers that be, uh, particularly opposition spokespeople who say what they're creating is a city centre for a transient population. And uh, there, there will not be a livable city with a community in it. No, and we need a city. Dublin has always been a bohemian city. You know, um, it has always been a city where you could come to. I myself came to. We stayed in bedsits. We uh, all, you know, shared rent, four or five of us in the house. Um, we didn't have it hanging over our heads that we were not going to be able to buy a house. We thought once we hit 30, 35, sure, we'll get our shit together, you know, and do that. <laughs> but uh, and that was the way it was. But now you have a generation who haven't even got the absolute and utter dignity of a private life. They're staying at home with mammy and daddy. They haven't got that five years where you, you develop your personality, your creativity. You become, you know, part of your the fabric of your city. You know, all the people I grew up with in the city, you know, in clubs and pubs and theatres. They all now have jobs in theatres. They own coffee shops. They, you know, they they are in law. They're, you know, everybody made it in their chosen field. Mm. And I don't know how that's going to happen for the next generation uh, without proper social housing. And when I say social housing, I don't mean that pe- social housing should no longer just be belong to the working class. It has to belong to everyone across the board because if houses go up and your wages go down, well then you're you're in the lower bracket of, of money so therefore you deserve a social... Uh, the, the, I suppose there's a couple of different issues that we talked about and touched on there and you didn't know. And one of them, one of the very first ones was I suppose social deprivation and drug users and emergency accommodation which arguably is separate from the social housing issue. There was a time a few years ago where I remember lots of debates in the radio and discussions about the number of emergency beds in the city and trying to get people off the street. And it's is it almost like we've just become inured to it? We've just, we, we've got used we to it. I, I was walking down the Keys the other day and it struck me there was tents in the forecourts, just in the old entrances to the forecourts, which actually is remarkable really to think about it. It is remarkable and that are we going to be that generation that people are aghast by that we actually walked over people on the way home that we walked by people on the street and it's all it seems to be that it's everyone else's responsibility by your own. So I'm actually putting my hand up here and saying I like where is our personal responsibility gone? Where is it? Maybe now that we're coming out of COVID and we've all had time to think, we can gather properly and think about how we can create a a city again and how we can create a community again and a personal responsibility. Writer, producer and comedian Catherine Lynch from The Hard Shoulder with Kieran Cuddihy. And now a couple of comments coming in. Uh, one, uh, as you might predict, Iggy and apostates like him can go their own way. The Catholic Church will go on. That's from Jerry. Uh, Shay in Dublin says this man should either be Taoiseach or Pope. <laughs> so you got the well, two sides of the coin I'm, from I'm, our I'm, listeners. I'm afraid I'm afraid I'll be needled, but thanks for the uh, implied compliment. Uh, the demise of the Catholic Church is directly in relation to its treatment of women. Jesus can't be happy the way the hierarchy of the church is turning away his people. Uh, Richie and Tala says in the 1930s and 40s, parents lived in fear of the Catholic Church and families were made to go to church services by parents. In the 1960s, with television, teenagers got freedom and are parents now. And that really is what has been evolving. Uh, I must remind you, uh, says Donal in Cork, that 
the Catholic Church teaching is not the same as the Bible's teaching. Uh, the greed and hypocrisy of the church is what's driving people away, refusing to pay abuse victims while dripping in wealth, lack of tolerance and diversity while preaching acceptance and love for all, lack of role, uh, roles for women and celibacy for priests. It's do as I say, not do as I do. If more in the church were like Father uh, Iggy, I might suspend disbelief and attend church. So says Jur in Cork, another one refreshingly honest about the church. Religion is dying because we are pretty sure there's no such thing as God. Fairy tales invented by cavemen who had no knowledge of science. We have computers now and spaceships. That's another comment we can make of that. Yeah, well, one, what one, you one, like. one of the ironies is that the church, in, and particularly in America, uh, which is by far the wealthiest we have, and talk about having computers and all the rest, they are, if you like, moving to the right in a big way into total fundamentalism. One of our hopes at the moment is the church in Germany is making a stir. And, uh, they, they and the Germans do have clout in the Catholic Church in Europe. They are making a stir, and I think we might get some bit of reform there. And it might, but in this country, though, what I'm detecting at the moment, Pat, as far as the church is concerned, what I would call deadly indifference. Deadly indifference. Difference. It just doesn't <laughs> matter to many people. That, yeah, that's a, in, in fact, apathy is a bigger enemy of the church than persecution. Some strong words, sir, from Father Iggy O'Donovan from the Pat Kenny Show. Catherine's on the line as well in Rathgar. Catherine, well, have you an issue with the seagulls? Oh, indeed I have, or rather I had. <clears throat> I had an issue for a few years running and uh, mine kind of has more of a, a comical turn in one way, but not, not at all in another. Um, what happened was about, say, three years ago, a, a pair started uh, to become acquainted on my chimney and proceeded love birds. to uh, yeah exactly and create a lovely nest and all the rest and whatever and I didn't think anything of it and and then I was away for a couple of weeks and when I came back I noticed huge activity and then a couple of weeks on um, a friend of mine called to drop something off this was in between lockdowns now so no rules were being broken and uh, she was waiting in the garden for me. I was about half an hour away in the car or whatever, and she was waiting in the garden for me. But uh, she had to seek refuge in a neighbour because uh, she was swooped upon by either Mammy oh, or Daddy yeah, or whoever laugh, it was. It's like the yeah, film, I the know, birds. But it, was, it was hilarious. We, we, we were just in hysterics at this, that she had to run away because the seagulls were chasing her down the road. And then other times there were people out walking with their children and their dogs. And again, the same crack was happening. But uh, the following day then, I go to go out of my house and I live in a terraced house and I walk out the door and here's this little chick, chick uh, in my front porch. And I'm terrified to go past the mm. chick because I might be apprehended on the way. And so I take my big umbrella and I go out and I step around the chick and I hop into my car as quick as lightning and my neighbour says, oh my God, they'll attack you. They, you know, they recognise you. Apparently they recognise your eyes and your facial features. And uh, so um, if you were seen doing anything you shouldn't be doing to uh, call them, as the previous caller called, um, they might find you and come in droves. So I wouldn't recommend that. However, that happened one year and then I had to get someone up on the roof, no more than the previous caller. Not yeah. quite as high a story as that, but uh, anyway, I had to get that sorted. Then the following year, the very same thing happened. The following year, the same thing happened. So again, like everybody else, what do you do? You go online. What do I do? And again, like your previous caller, 
in the first instance, I think I contacted Rent or some of these, and they said protected species, you can do nothing. So that was fine. So once the nests were gone, I thought, well, get somebody up on the roof and get that sorted. So spikes were erected and everything else. And same crack happened three years in a row. So anyway, I'm online and I say how to get rid of seagulls or whatever. And lo and behold, I purchased two items and placed them in my front garden, which are reflectors uh, on a big spiky thing and it has this shiny thing that uh, reflects the light and I'm sure the neighbours probably think she has lost it, she's gone dotty <laughs> because I now have a, um, a plastic falcon hanging from a tree in my front garden and I did the same for my back garden and yeah. lo and behold they've moved out. Solved the problem. Plastic falcons so, all you uh, need. A plastic falcon and this reflector thing and I got some other Thing, you know, one of these uh, noise-sensitive things. You know, that I can't even remember what what they're called. I paid a fortune for that, but I don't know if that yeah. works. But that's the thing. But I mean, anyway, even listening to yourself and Fry, the cost of all of this. Yes, yes, it's mad. And and then you know, but the poor little mites. I felt feel so sorry for them. I think they're kicked out of the nest. And then, sure, in the middle of the night, a fox comes along or whatever other. Um, animal of four feet or two feet or whatever and decides, you know, we'll, we'll get rid of this fellow or we'll have this fellow for dinner. So the poor little things, I'm reminded of that story in the Melophant Reader of his first flight. You're you're too young to remember this now. <laughs> but it was one of those stuck in my head, you know, where it was, yeah. you know, letting the little chick off the cliff edge for the first flight. A beautiful story, absolutely beautiful story. But these poor little mites are left out to graze but the mother and father cackle now they cackle like geese um around the place and you just need the umbrella is all i can say a tough time of it with them catherine well not now no you find a solution and and my consultancy rates are are very low you know for anybody who needs you know any of our lunchtime live listeners you'll do them a good rate yes absolutely listen stay with us catherine who called lunchtime live on thursday afternoon very, very difficult times for the kids, young people inside here, you know. Things need to be improved here, sorted out, like, you know, it's just going on too long. For the kids' sake and for the family's sake, you know. Fill in, fill in the potholes there and all that, like. All the children are hurting themselves and all that, like. So fill in the potholes, something yeah. as simple as that. Yeah. And what about the washing facilities? What are they like? They're bad, like, they need to do something, with it, like. And, and the caravans and, and the yeah, we need better homes. We need better homes. Better homes? Yeah, better homes, yeah. We, we should provide it with chalets to be way better off. So you'd like a chalet, not like yeah, a mobile no, home? Yeah, mobile homes are no good, they're not winterproof. And what's that like with the, the fact In the wintertime, the kids will be freezing the cold inside it. Like in other sites around the, around the country, in Dublin and elsewhere, they provide so much chalets that are winter, winterproof, you know, more warm and and uh, ranges and heat proof for the kids, you know. And do you think the, the facilities are a third world? Do you think they're very old-fashioned? Yeah, the mobile homes, they're done in summer homes, so they're not good enough. What's it like living here? Oh, Jesus, it's like a top one. Tommy, put me in any, any TVs now. Well, there's no TV. We're not on TV. It's just radio. It's like a top one. There's summer homes, and in the wintertime, the kids will be free set inside it. There's no washing facilities. There's a washing machine there, and if, if it gets wet, it trips. So you've nowhere drying the clothes or nothing for the children. And how many years have you been living here? Oh, Jesus, 30 years. So you've been here since the start? Yeah, 35 years. I said it's built here now, nearly. And how is it for the children? Oh, desperate. It's desperate for the kids. In the wintertime, they'll be freezing freeze the cold. And it'll be all coughs see, and asthma. See, there's overcrowding in here. There's an awful overcrowding in here. Overcrowding. Everyone is living on top of another. Every caravan, there's only two foot between every caravan inside in parts of the, the site. So very crammed. Yeah, they're all uh, side by side off one another and they're all overcrowded. And how are you getting through the pandemic? 
We're struggling, we're struggling through it. We're barely struggling with to try and make the best of it. There's too many families in one site. The site is overcrowded. Like they should, for the amount of people that's living in here, the amount of families living in here, they should have separate sites. Like this was only designed for 10 bays the first time, 10 families. Now there's 45 families inside it. We're all big families. The council, they're not listening. They're letting people here linger and suffer. Suffer and they don't care where they suffer. Once they're ordered away and, and they don't hear from them, they don't mind, they live as they live. Are the rats an issue? They're millions of them. They're like, they're like flies around there. That's not good for the kids. That's not good for any, any health, for any person, rats running around the place. To bring in, there's a fella comes around with the poison, he might come in now and again. He put one knob in one bag, maybe ten boxes around the whole side, what there's 45 families. And he's picked uh, one little small sash in each bag, a small little bit of a sash, and he expects that thing to kill millions of rats. So the like where's it going with 10 sashes for the killing millions of rats? So the Ombudsman for Children has strongly uh, criticised the local council about the conditions here on this halting site, describing it as shocking and deplorable, uh, and that the report is called No End in Sight. Um, how bad are conditions here? How difficult are they? Oh, Jesus, this is like a top world in here. This site, it shouldn't, this site like, it is overcrowded, way overcrowded. There's too many families inside it. Families living here for the last 30 years, and there's a, uh, there's a three generation of one family in here. People need to be housed out of here now, and uh, the living condition is very bad. So very bad conditions. Very, very bad, very bad living conditions. And how is it for the kids? Well, the kids don't have any uh, play in area. They have no place to play, like to cycle a bike or play a ball or play a hurdling or anything like that. And tell me about washing facilities and showering. How do, how do you do that? Well, I've, I have a bet inside, and it takes f- five to six hours for less than a half a bit of water to heat up. And where you have a crowd of kids, maybe five or six or six or seven kids to be washed and signed up one bed of water because you can't allow them to go out to wait for another six hours for another bed of water to be heated up. And um, So like the 1950s? Yes. and there's very, Like you have to wash seven kids and sign that there now and uh, the, kids don't want to use, the kids don't want to use one water but you have no other choice to do that. And I think at this age and stage, you know, I think that the, the council like, is, is getting a grant from the government to, so hopefully things will get better. And hopefully things will get better. You now after 30 years, I think it's time for at this age of stage you now for um, for life to pick up and like and it's not coming from the council. Like the government is giving the council money to look after the travelling people, either house them, or cite them, or support them in some way. Like but they're not doing that. They don't use their money. Sometimes they send the money back. They won't satisfy you for the help and support you with that that funding. And they're delicting the travelling people, and they can support them and help them if they want to. Like there's over 45 or 50 families in here now, like. Yeah, all young families coming up again, and there's going to be a lot more of them. There's a lot of young boys and girls around there now getting married. And they need space, and they need places to go. Henry McKean reporting for The Heart Shoulder with Kieran Cuddihy.
Grace Bob Dylan as heard on The Tom Dunn Show. In case you missed it, with Susan Cahill, a look back at the week on News Talk. Yeah, I love it on uh, cinnamon bagel and a bit of banana. Toast the bagel, bit of butter, honey on top. Delicious. And then I love that with the cheese, man. Especially with the Parmesan cheese. And if you're Irish, you should try that with the vintage cheddar. Beautiful. That's amazing, man. Cocktails. Always. <laughs> Using, like, local honey and even flavoured, like, say, wildflower honey, lavender honey, adds, like, a different element to cocktails that regular sugar just wouldn't. Yeah. Fans of honey are celebrating one of their favourite spreads to mark World Bee Day. Here in Ireland, it's estimated there are around 6,000 beekeepers, some just doing it as a hobby, others are producing and selling honey. I visited Irish Bee Supplies in County Loud, where I met Jim Carroll from the Loud Beekeepers Association, who showed me around some of his hives. Only for the bees, like 80% of the food we eat, if we had no pollinators, that food wouldn't be produced because it's dependent on pollinators to pollinate it from male flowers to female flowers. And I could see now in your shop you have all the gear that's needed. Is it a costly hobby to get into or like, does it take a lot of time? Well, to get into it, the membership is roughly around about €100 Euros a year, which is not bad. And to get, to get a start-up, you're probably talking five or €600 Euros to get you your hive and your bees and all your little bits and pieces. So you're after zipping me up now in this uh, suit. I'm fully protected, am I? Well, <laughs> I hope so anyway. You... It's, it's early in the morning and the bees can be grumpy like myself in the morning. Yeah, <laughs> it's the first time for everything. I have the, the netting now over my face and the Wellington boots on. Will we take a walk around? Do you, you, want, do you want to show? Yeah. So yeah. What, what are we looking at here now? Well, this is, this is uh, my breeding apiary. I only breed the bees here. I'd be finishing up now probably in the next month with about 50 nukes. A nuke is a small hive. Uh, we'll open up a hive now and we'll have a little look. You say I'm safe in and this. And you can be ready to run. I, I, I trust you. I trust you. Yeah, okay. Just uh, the hive open there. Uh, there'd be probably around about 15, 20,000 bees in, in, in this. Yeah. And just, right. We'll just lift out a frame here now. And. Uh, uh, there's one there now on the, on the mic and on the recorder yeah yeah um, and they're all playing their own little part ah, they're all doing their own little job yeah they're all doing their own little job yeah and that's it and up round the top here is, is honey they put the honey up round the top so it's close 
to the to the young bees to feed them and the pollen. And do they mind being disturbed there now when you pull out that um, frame? Well, you can see them there now. They're quite they're quite gentle there, and I'm doing the bees there with no gloves or anything on me there. You can see that there, like you see that there. I'll rub your hand open there. Doesn't come off of my hands there. God. You see that there. They're coming up there. They're walking your hand there. Josh Crosby reporting for the Heart Shoulder with Kieran Cuddihy. For that though, in five minutes we're going to be discussing the calls for the voting age to be lowered from 18 to 16. Kira, are you down with the kids? I am down with the kids, Shane. Yes, I am. I think this is not a bad idea at all. I think if you have ever heard TY students debating political issues, they are incredibly well informed. They are often studying politics in school. They are cogent and they are often passionate too in a way that people who are older perhaps are not. They are absolutely as capable of making judgments and making decisions as older adults. And yes, they might choose differently than their older counterparts. But that's democracy, lads. And when you look back at the arguments that were used against extending the vote to women, to people that didn't have higher levels of education, to people that weren't wealthy over over the millennia, democracy has tried to be sort of narrowed and kept for an elite group. All that it ever did was create a society where some voices were overrepresented and other voices were silent. Are you joking there? No, I'm not joking at ah, all. I think on. lastly, Kira, I think lastly, this is a very idea. no, no. Lastly, this is a very important point. Developing political engagement as a habit in our youth can only be a good thing. Oh. I can't think of a single argument that stands up against well, doing it, Shane. Can here's you? Here's one. They're children. They're children. They're not adults. It's not like giving women ah. the vote. It's not like giving over 18s and under 21s the vote. Let children be children. They cannot be named in court. They cannot legally have a drink. If you're not going to be allow someone, if someone isn't responsible and mature enough to have a drink legally, how can you say that they uh, that they should have the vote. 80% of Irish teenagers 16 and older have had a drink so that's nonsense. They might not be Kira, legally allowed Kira, but they we're already are. We're talking about the law. We're not talking about what they do the illegally. The line at which we say someone is an adult is an, is an arbitrary one. They're not old, They're not adults. They're children. They're, they're not, not children. They're and, adolescents. Sorry, children are kids what you're below saying, the age of 12. What you're saying about children uh, being better informed than adults. I didn't say better informed. I said very well informed. It's hokum. It's absolute. What are you basing that on? Based on talking to young based people, based on sticking your finger in the air, that's about it. Like, there's no evidence of that at all. And what's your evidence that they aren't? That they're children. Ah, they're not stop mature. Them children. Well, sorry, Kira, a seventeen-year-old is not are. a child. Yes, Most they of them are. are drinking, legally, having sex, living their best lives legal, out there. They're doing. Sorry, things. legally, are they a child or an adult? I think it is questionable. No, that they, my question. are currently, they, they are legally they're, a child, but I'm yeah. not sure that that's a very good thing. I actually think a lot of people. I would. I tell you what. So let's the give them the vote an and say if somebody who is sixteen commits a crime, that they should be tried uh, as an adult. Do both. It's, this is populist. No, it's hokum. not populist because All I think is. probably most people agree with Down you. Down with the kids. No, Shane and Kira on News Talk Breakfast. Let me jump in there, William, because the, the two traits of Munger's there that you mentioned, I think, are interesting. You mentioned resilience, and you mentioned that he was rational. Now there, you know, he's obviously fortunate to have those traits, but some people just don't have them. Some people aren't as resilient and, and some people, you know, maybe they're not just rational. So, you know, can you learn these traits if you don't have them? That's a great question. I think one of one of the one of the lessons for me in reporting on this book and 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 spending so much time with these extraordinary thinkers is to realize that there are qualities that they have that I simply don't have. And so for me to understand that I'm not as rational, that I'm not as unemotional, I, I'm not as dispassionate in thinking about facts and figures as someone like Munger is very helpful because it means I have to decide, well, 
uh, am I equipped temperamentally or intellectually or emotionally to win the game that he is equipped to win? And and so, for example, he I, I asked him if during the financial crisis in, in 2008, 2009, whether he actually felt emotions like like fear and anxiety. And he said, no, no, I just don't don't feel them. And he said, Warren is wired exactly the same way. He doesn't feel it either. And so for me, one of the great lessons is to say, okay, that's not a game that I'm going to win because I'm not wired in the same way. So I can I can win a different game. Maybe I have to outsource managing money to a, 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 a shrewd money manager whose interests are aligned with mine and who's not going to screw me financially because their fee structure is exorbitant. But, but, but at least I know that that's a game I'm not equipped to win. And, yeah. and likewise, I think to know that I might be more inclined to panic or more inclined to get carried away means I can sort of decide, well, okay, let me just sit quietly in an index fund for many years. And that's a great default position. Mm, so that self-awareness is, is, is key. Forewarned is forearmed, uh, as they say, but it is important to emphasise the importance of luck as well, isn't it? I mean, you, you could obey all these principles and, and just be unlucky, or likewise, you mightn't obey them uh, and you could be lucky. Yeah, I, I write at length about an extraordinary investor called Howard Marks, who manages about $120 billion at a firm called Oak Tree. And one of the things that's fascinating to me is here you have a guy who could easily regard himself as a master of the universe. He's a multi-billionaire. He's, he's incredibly bright, incredibly successful. And yet he's constantly reminding himself of the role of luck in his own life. And one of the great stories that he told me that had an enduring effect on me is he said that when he left Wharton, he, um, he, he was desperate to go work at Lehman Brothers. And he said they, they, never, they never gave him the job. And many years later, he discovered that the guy who actually, the partner at Lehman who was supposed to call him and tell him, yeah, we're hiring you, got drunk, had a hangover and failed to call him to give him the news. And he said, look, all of these years later, Lehman Brothers went bankrupt during the global financial crisis. And if I had been there, I, I probably would have been a partner and I would have lost all of my life savings. And so I think one of the one of the things that that is really helpful to him in reminding himself of his own good fortune is that it protects him from what I call master of the universe syndrome. He, he doesn't get carried away and think, wow, I can predict the future and I know what's going to happen. And, and as a result, he's he treads very carefully. And I think that's a really useful lesson for all of us to to just say, okay, well, I don't know what the future holds. As 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 Howard Marks said to me, sometimes we 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 not only don't know what's going to happen, we don't even know what could happen. Which is one of his conclusions from COVID. He said nobody, uh, no no economist was predicting what would happen with COVID. So I think just to have that humility to say, I don't know what the future holds. So let me just tread carefully. Not let me not overreach. Let me not invest borrowed money. Let me not live beyond my means and let me not gamble on stuff that I don't understand. And so that humility, I think, becomes a really important survival strategy. It keeps it keeps you really from doing stupid stuff that, that uh, you know, investing in ways that that um, uh, are just too risky because they're yep. based on on overreaching. Some fascinating insights there from author William Green from Taking Stock with Gavin McLaughlin. And of course, you can tune into Gavin every Sunday morning from 10 to 11. In case you missed it, with Susan Cahill, a look back at the week on News Talk. Do you think this time we'll get it right with the reopening of restaurants and pubs? Well, hopefully, because all the other countries seem to open up and we're a smaller country and we can't seem to get our act together at all. 
Have you been vaccinated? No. So you're still waiting? No, I'm not having it. You're not going to have the vaccination? No. So you want everything to reopen, but you don't want to get vaccinated? No, I think if everyone takes care of their own hygiene, takes responsibility, and let everyone just get on with their lives. Will you go back to the restaurant? Oh, yeah. No problem. And I take care, sanitise my hands, good hygiene. And you'll be going back to the restaurant? Hopefully when they open back up. I absolutely can't wait to go back to the restaurant though and have like a few little cocktails and dinner and everything like but I don't think keeping a metre apart is going to work because I do think that like even when you're in the shops everyone's supposed so to keep you, a you naturally see a friend and you want to go over and say hello yeah like in the restaurant I mean? yeah definitely like you know it's uh, the metre thing's not probably going to work there's no point in it I'd say just open the restaurants and just let everyone go in and eat and stuff so I would get vaccinated if I had to to go away on holidays. And I know a lot of people and a lot of my friends feel the same about so that. So they would so. do it just to get to Spain? Yeah, exactly. If you can go on holidays uh, and you have to get vaccination, they will get it. Otherwise you wouldn't? Uh, I don't know, I'm just You're sitting worried. on the fence? Yeah, I don't what know. What are you worried about? Just, I don't know, different side effects and, you know. But if everyone in the restaurant or cafe or pub uh, was vaccinated or the majority were... You would be safer. Yeah, pretty Im- much. You you'd, have, you'd have herd immunity then. I was 11 days in ICU and I don't remember one day if it was a month in Bowman Hospital. And the only thing I can say is angel saints right from the tea lady to the surgeon who looked after me, everybody was brilliant. They give their heart and soul to make sure everybody's good. But I don't know where I got it. I did nothing that Christmas Day I went to my daughter's and I sat at a different table having a meal nothing so I don't know how I got it where they got it and you survived but yeah. what do you say to people that say they won't take the vaccine they describe it as well, poison have, in their body what I do you say vi- to them I have five videos here and if, I, if you saw one of them I couldn't breathe I got 24 hours to live and I'm here now through people through the vaccine I have the vacuum I have the Pfizer vaccine and you're feeling good and I'm putting on weight again Congratulations. And that's it, I feel great. And you're alive. And anybody who's not getting it, they just now don't know anybody who really had bad. So they just don't understand it? They don't understand it at all. So you're here to tell the tale, you live? Oh yeah, I live. I've been dead twice, 24 hours twice. It's just I have a great family that looked after me. And you came back to life? And I'm back to life, and look at me now. And you're a taxi driver? Taxi driver, and I'm trying to get out and just, just get out of the house to live and talk to people. And when the restaurants do reopen, and when you can go indoors, and it'll be a metre apart, obviously... Taxi drivers do quite well out of restaurants. You want that business. It will lead to trade, won't it? Well, it'll take two years for anything to come back for their business. For their business, at least. I used to work up in the airport and, you know, it's the way it's going. But it's just to meet people and talk to people. That's more important than everything else. And if foreign travel starts again, EU travel starts again in late July, that would be a boost for you, won't it? Well, I've booked a holiday for Spain in September, so I'm hoping for travel comes back. Henry McKean reporting. On Monday, Tom Dunn spoke with actress, comedian and writer Eilish O'Carroll on coming out as gay. Here's a short clip. So when when was that? When did you actually kind of publicly come out? Okay, I publicly, I suppose, that was 2013, I think it was, when I actually did the play, when I went out with the play. Um, So that was really... and, And, of course, what happened was, obviously, the newspapers got hold of that. Um, radio got hold of that and that's when I was being asked to do interviews and you know what was it like and so on and so forth so I'm really glad I did it um, because it was almost like I'm telling my story I'm not allowing anybody else to tell my story 
Yeah. I, I'm just I, struck that it, 95 is when you're hiding, kind of moved to West Cork. Yes. And 2013 is to play. play. You're talking 18 years there. Oh, yeah. Listen, I think a friend of mine asked me once, um, who was also married, and, she, and I met her in, in Lincoln Cork. And she said, how long is it before you actually really come to terms with it? She said, is it one year, two years? And I said, well, I can tell you for me, it was 10 years. It was 10 years before I could say the word, I am gay, to myself. And, and that's that when my even after you started going to the meetings? No, no. I mean, I went to, oh yeah, even after I started to go to the meetings. I mean, the meetings was all about, you know, I'm just going to go and I might be gay. I mean, maybe these right. people can tell me, is there a test I can take? You know? Yeah. Is it in the clothes I wear? Is it um, is the food I eat? You know, um, right. And I know it sounds crazy, but that's where your thinking process can actually go to. I had no indication whatsoever as a young person, as a married woman, twice, that I might have an issue with my sexuality. And the beauty of this Invisible Threads podcast is that it's given so many diverse stories because we're all very different. We all have a very, very different story to tell. And it yeah. goes to show you how diverse the LGBTQ community actually is. It's as diverse as any other community. Um, and I think because you are older, when you get older, one becomes a little less visible anyway. That has been my experience, right? Um, right. So when you're becoming less visible as an older person, how is it for the individual who happens, happens to be gay and also older? So you're doubly invisible. And I wonder if there are some people out there, and I'm sure there are, who kind Must of be. feel they missed the boat. They never got that opportunity to come out. And is it too late for them now? And I think what we're trying, I think what the LGBT community is trying to do is to get that message out there that, that we're still... The world may have changed for some people, but for others it hasn't. And maybe, just maybe, there are, um, these people need to know that there is help out there. There is still support out there. Nobody's going to make you gay. Nobody's going to encourage you to be gay. But there are people there you can talk to. And sometimes just when you share that kind of fear factor, anything that you're going through in life, when you share that with somebody, it's so much easier to actually live with. Absolutely. I, I think that's the thing, that listening to your story, I, I think other people in similar, or even, even sometimes quite a different situation, so the feeling that you might be alone in something, I think is probably the most frightening feeling in the world. Yes, but absolutely. when you see other people who, who yes. are like you and feel the yes. same things, it's such a relief. Yeah, and you, feel, you begin to feel, I'm okay. I'm not going to die yeah. from this. And I think what yes. was lovely as well through the pandemic, that, again, the LGBT community set up coffee mornings for older um, gay people. Um, and that brought in new people, right, who hadn't right. been out, who hadn't come out and maybe aren't out. But, you know, and I suppose because it's Zoom and because you're kind of this, this, this um, you can hide your 
your life to a certain extent. You're not actually walking into a building. Nobody's actually going to spot you. Your next door neighbor's yeah. not going to say, oh my God, I saw Fred go into the gay club last night. You know what I'm saying? Of course. So that made it so much it, easier for some people as yeah. well, I think. What a wonderful woman, Eilish O'Carroll from Moncrief. Just in terms of watching movies and TV, you don't own a television and haven't for a long time, right? No, no, I've, I don't think I've ever had a television in my life. So obviously there was a TV when I was growing up. But back then, I was grew up in, Do- in Dublin and Donnybrook. But, you know, we were meant to speak only Irish language. So there wasn't much even watching of TV unless my mum or my granny wasn't around to catch us. Um, yeah, and then, I mean, then, you know, I spent, I whatever. So 1991 was when I saw that film. And then I spent the next six years traveling the world until, like, going, just never, setting as little time in Ireland as I could, living up in the Himalayas, living in the Rockies, living in the Andes. And eventually in 1997, my brother came out and with a TV camera. And 1996, actually he came out in 1996, and that was when T.G. Gar was setting up. We made a, a travel documentary that was like was shown in the first, I think, the second day of TG Car ever in '97. But then we spent you know, like we spent the next decade making TV programs, and it sort of made me a bit jaundiced about TV because I realised a lot of the just the, the rubbish, the sort of tawdriness of it. The me, I was so annoyed, I'm so bored of myself doing pieces to camera and just focusing on some things and ignoring others that I've never really had had confidence in TV. Despite, as you said, that was '97, and ever since that's like 24 years of making TV programs. But I, I edit them. I go into the post-production studio and do the voiceover, but then I don't tend to see them again. Wow. And so, I mean, you know, half the world have been binging box sets during this bizarre pandemic time. But I guess you haven't been doing any of that. And I don't mean that as a criticism. Far from it. Now, I'm addicted to podcasts like I'm and I'm, I'm always in awe of when I hear of people like you who say, like, I've seen this film a few times. Like, as it happens, I've seen Les Amants de Ponneuve twice. I saw it in 1991. It all stayed with me. And then about oh, eight years, seven years ago, I was in I was a resident in the Saint Culturel Irlandais, you know, in the Irish Centre in Paris. Mm-hmm. And I just thought, that's the film. I remember Lisa Hannigan was going to come over for dinner and there was a few others. There was Donald Teskey, an artist. There was uh, Judith Ring, a composer. There was all these Irish artists were there together. And I thought, let's watch Les Amants de Pont Neuf. And it was extreme, totally different from what I imagined it to be. Um, but anyway, why was it? I can't remember why I was telling you that now. Oh, yeah. So I, I don't watch movies twice. Uh, you know, I'll go to the cinema and see a movie. But what I do do is, and what I would have done this year during the COVID year, is just binged on podcasts instead. I adore audio. I love radio. I love podcasts. Yeah. Well, listen, I want to ask you about your new book, but en route to that, you know, everyone always talks to you about your house building. I know you built a house famously of straw and then that didn't work out after a few years. There were some cracks as far as I know. And then about 10 years ago, you built a house from a variety of, of, of materials. It has a grass roof. There is cement, but there's also straw and mud. People ask you about that a lot. And I wonder, is part of people's fascination with that outside of the actual house more to do with the fact that here's someone who successfully seemed to get out of the whole mortgage rat race. Yeah, I reckon so. So like the reason that I've been able to live my life so far and I was doing a lot of travel, doing very little work and just messing is because, well, first, thanks to all those years living in Africa and South America and India, I realised, God, most of the world don't have a mortgage. Most of the world do build a house out of what's around them. So then that's what I did. I came back to, to Ireland, found cheap land, built the house. And as you say, like, I'm certainly not a good person to talk to about building good houses or long term <laughs> houses. Like the first house lasted six years. The second house, it's fine. 
fine. The house with the grass roof and the mud and the straw on the outside and the plaster mixed all of it. It's fine, but it's just basically a big room. It's just a big square room. It, it's a hovel, really, but I just love, like, I must have been a hermit in the past life. I love simple spaces. Um, and so I think, yeah, what the reason that people are excited is, or, you know, are interested in is first, we all we all would love to find a way of avoiding the rat race, avoiding um, mortgages, avoiding rush hour. And I showed, I found one way of doing it. I don't know would it be suitable for other people because other people would probably look at this little hovel I live in and just think, you know, on my own for years and years and think, like, get a life. <laughs> There's more to that. But it suits me. And, uh, and, and you know, and s- since then, whatever, 20 years ago again when I first got the land and I planted my woodland. And so now mm-hmm. I have this, like, fully mature oak woodland. And now most of the day, or a few hours every day, is just spent growing either vegetables or looking after fruit trees or looking after hens and sometimes our pigs. So... It's just, it's, an alt- it's a different type of way of life. Writer and documentary maker Moncon McGon from Screen Time with John Fardy. And of course, you can tune into John every Saturday evening from six till seven. OK, I'm going to leave you with now. Own Sheen and off the balls crappy quiz. Have a great weekend. If no one manages that, the nearest contestant who doesn't go bust gets two points. The second closest gets one point. I'm going to say that we can only accept the answer that's written on your paper. I'm also going to ask for your pens once the music ends. So if you don't mind, give us the following number, which came in on our postcard this week. A lovely uh, monkey there eating a banana uh, sent in to us. Um, I don't know who it's from. Whoever you are, uh, let us know. Uh, this is an anonymous uh, viewer who says, Hello, Owen. I wrote uh, quick numbers around to avoid working on uh, working from home. If you don't use these questions, I won't be offended. Well, here we are. Uh, the number of PDC World Arts Championships won by ah. Phil Taylor. Plus, by who? By Phil Taylor. Plus... The number of major trophies won by Pep at Manchester City. Plus the number of games won by Ireland at the European Championships in soccer. Plus, what, do you mean? what do you mean? Like the actual tournament? Yeah. Okay. Plus, rounded up to the nearest whole number, the number of seconds below four minutes of the fastest mile by an Irish athlete. What? Give us that? What's that? Rounded up to the nearest whole number, the number of seconds <laughs> below four minutes of the fastest mile by an Irish athlete. Your 30 seconds expire when Sinatra sings Bright Shiny Beads. So how many World Championships has Phil Taylor won? How many major trophies has Pep won with Manchester City? How many games have Ireland won at the Euros? And rounded up to the nearest whole number, the number of seconds below four minutes of the fastest mile by an Irish athlete. That is a brilliant question. Thank you, anonymous listener. I put even Klaus I and Adrian there. All right, time's up. What have you got, Adrian? Uh, 288. 288. <laughs> <laughs> I, think I, I think that last what? question is just, go on. What? Uh, Tommy? 32. 32, Jer? 25. 25. Tommy gets the points. It's 34. What was Ooh, that last quick? Nice. Give me the, uh, I get well, Jer gets one. Jer gets get one, one point, no? And yeah. I get two. Yeah, 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 yeah. What was the, 34. What, that last question. Nice. Uh, so, so let's just go through the, the start to finish. <laughs> 200 and what? <laughs> number of PDC World Arts Championships won by Phil Taylor is 14. I said four. I had 12. How many? 14. I 12. I'm going to end up in almost close on the money here apart from that last stupid question. I had eight. The number of uh, major trophies won by Pep at Man City. It says seven, seven here. I'm just double checking that. One, two, three, four five, six, seven. It's actually eight. So this was sent in before the Carabao Cup. So the answer is actually 35. Uh, the number of games won by Ireland at European Championships is two. And two. And then rounded up to the nearest whole number, the number of seconds below four minutes of the fastest mile by an Irish athlete, which is 11. 
headache for that. I had 10. So uh, that brings you to a total of 35. Tommy, as I say, <laughs> I'm not sure how age you Wait, what say. did you write down, Adrian? That 270. <laughs> he, should, he should get deducted points for that. Like, That's ridiculous. Really. It's, just, it's a very hey. confusing question for like. It's a, uh, it's a very straightforward question. In case you missed it, with Susan Cahill, a look back at the week on News Talk.